1: Here's a quick one, Ryan. I'm going to, I'm going to read it so I can ask you first, uh, which receiver,
2: some Jordan Treiber? which receiver has the best chance for a thousand yards in 2023? I, I think that we talked about this one maybe last week or the week before Jordan. I think it's one of the two outside trees that you have at Notre Dame, right? So I think it's Deion Colsey or Tobias Merriweather. I have been on record. I'm going to stick with it because I really am a fan of this kid. I think Deion Colsey takes a huge step up in 2023. So, Best chance, uh, give me Dion. I also think that Tobias has a very good he has a very good argument in this conversation. Part of this
1: is who the coordinator is going to be. Is one of the reasons that we both said Dion uh, when we asked this a couple weeks ago is because in Tom Reese's offense, the W, the boundary receivers, the primary, you know, that's kind of the number one go to guy position. That may change with a new coordinator. I'm going to go with Tobias simply because he's the best, most talented kid that they have. And so without knowing who the coordinator is or any of that stuff, I'm just going to bank on the most talented kid. And I think he's the most talented kid. But you could make a case for Dion. I would not push back against your argument for Dion. I'd say, yeah, it's a good answer. Here's mine. I'd make a case for Lorenzo. I think you can make a case for him as well. I think those three guys all. And it it, it would not completely shock me if Jaden Thomas was that guy. Yeah, you know? I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be overly shocked if it was Jaden, yeah.
2: to be honest. I really wouldn't.
1: He's the most consistent right now. Yeah, I just think he's going to be a lower yards per catch guy, which means he'd have to catch more balls. And the reason, part of the reason I went with Tobias and and Lorenzo is because I think that the guy that gets to get to thousand yards is going to have to be a more of a big play guy, because sure. I don't think anyone's going to be a seventy five catch guy, Ryan. And you know where that makes it easier to get there. You're going to need to do it on fifty to fifty five, maybe sixty catches, sure. because the ball is going to be spread around more. And so those two guys are more of the bigger play guys, and I think that lends to Dion as well over Jaden. Because Dion, yeah. you know, could also be a 16 yard per catch kind of, 17 yard per catch kind of guy too, depending on how he's used. Where yeah. Jaden may be more 13, 14, which means he's going to need a lot more volume, and that may. Or I'm like, look, the year that I had, um, my, my year at Duquesne, right? I, Mike, a kid named Michael Warfield, who had over 1,100 yards and 14 touchdowns that year. He was our number two leading receiver from a catch standpoint. The kid who led the team in catches had like – Randy Volokovic had like 65, but he only had 690-something yards because he was our slot. And our slot in that offense was a possession chain mover type of guy. And so, you know, even though he led our team in catches, he wasn't anywhere close to being a 1,000 yards. Michael Warfield only had 51 catches, but he averaged over 20 a catch. And so that's why even though he had like 51 catches for like 1,100 yards – 14 touchdowns because he was our big play guy. We ran a lot of posts with him. He lot, called a lot of balls over the top, a lot of goal routes. He didn't need the volume. And so that factors yeah. into why Jaden's probably the last guy that I would
2: would uh, have as that option. But, again, it wouldn't shock me, to be no. honest with you. And Sam Hartman loves those outside receivers, man. Ooh, loves yeah. those, out, those outside vertical stuff. So, yep.
0: yeah. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate – Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Yes!
2: From the little I have researched, Colin Klein was impressive at Kansas State. Do you see his philosophy fitting at Notre Dame? I do. I, I do look, too. the only guy whose philosophy I don't think fits in great right now is
1: Sean Lewis, to be honest with you. And and I think Sean Lewis is a very good coach. And I, I and, and I don't know if he's as strong of a candidate as he's being made out to be. It's just my opinion. But he's the new hot name that people are talking about. I just don't think he fits the Notre Dame personnel very well and we talked about the early show. shows we need to re, we don't need to rehash it again I think he's a heck of a coach from what I've seen Ryan I think it's a great hire for Colorado I just don't think it fits as well at Notre Dame but yes Colin Klein's system fits his philosophy fits it's a balanced offense it's a it's a you know it's not conservative by any stretch but it's also attempts to be efficient
2: yes and I think those things are are, are important I think yep. those things are very important and, and the the I mean we talked about it earlier but the where Colin Klein believes the strengths of a team are is working inside out, right? Good offensive line play, ability to run the football, some movements based stuff, but you're really trying to establish a run game. And off of that, you're going to create some big explosive plays. You're going to create some big plays. So I think that the seamless transition will definitely come from the emphasis on running the football. Let's play to our strengths, the offensive line, the running backs, tight ends. Yes. And then outside of that, you can create some big plays because, all due respect to Malik Knowles, who I think is a good football player at Kansas State. If he's going to create a bunch of big plays, I have good confidence that you can also get a lot out of Tobias Merriweather and Deion Coles. He makes some big plays. Yeah. So.
1: There were some good questions that kind of sprung from that conversation we just had about the 1,000-yard receiver, Ryan. So I'm going to go down yeah. and just bring a couple of those up first. Sure. Uh, and then I'm going to answer – I'm going to read it because it's a two-parter. I'm going to have you answer both parts of the question. Well, it's not time. a two part. He kind of sets a different number a second time. System Domer is more likely one receiver with 1,000 plus yards or four receivers of 500 receiving yards. Then he changes it to or set the four players at an appropriate number, 700 maybe. So, Ryan, what would you, your answer to that be? Four players over 700. Kind of two different. So, yeah. I would say take it two different. So, answer it the first way 1,000 okay. versus 500, and then the
2: second way 1,000 versus 700. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it with the thousand yard receiver again, like last week or the week before, I I think that it's much more likely that it's more spread out. I don't think I I wouldn't be surprised if there's like one receiver with 800 and then there's like three other guys that have 500 plus, right? Like I think that there is an opportunity for Notre Dame to be very spread out. You know, I, I think that, so Domer Grace, if you're asking me which one's more likely for me, it's definitely the four 500 plus yard receivers. Like no doubt about it in my mind
1: the 4 for 700 how about that one see that's that, a little that, tougher
2: that, that gets a little steep right that uh, cuz that's what I was originally going to say was that 4 with over 700 that's that's a you lot you drop
1: it down one and go to 3 i'd i'd say that's maybe a little bit more likely but even that'll be a more little likely close. Yeah. yeah definitely
2: more likely yeah yeah
1: but the that's 4 for lot, 500 I, I look i think there's a this could happen where both of them happen i mean cuz 500 i mean look you could have 500 just from i mean four guys i mean like if 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 i were to say okay tobias Merriweather has a thousand yards mitchell evans is gonna have 500 yards Jaden thomas is gonna have 500 yards and either lorenzo styles or deon coles is gonna have 500 yards would that surprise you are, are we including tight
2: ends i took this as just wide receivers that's my question
1: well, fine okay then then yeah i kind of took it as like just pass catchers it's kind of okay. how i had it uh and so then I I'd say okay so but even then it's okay Tobias has a thousand and then Dion between Dion Caleb Smith Lorenzo and Jaden Thomas three you know three of those guys have five hundred that wouldn't shock me that wouldn't shock me now you no. know um, it I wouldn't predict it and he he did clarify he meant all pass catchers all pass, pass catchers receivers and running backs
2: oh yeah I think that's very strong possibility and if we're including yeah. pass catchers because if yeah. if like you said if Mitchell Evans is that guy that maybe he has like. Forty catches for five hundred yards, like yeah, it's very right. possible. Right, seven hundred still tough. That's, that's a lot, lot of. That's a that's lot. lot. I mean, Ryan, that if they all just
1: had the minimum, that's, 200, that's two hundred. That's twenty-eight hundred passing yards with just four guys. That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's a. And
2: if it's just the baseline, like it could yeah. happen.
1: Sure, yeah, sure. And that's exactly that's if they're all just barely over seven hundred. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That that'll be tougher. That'll be tougher. But yeah. but a good question. There's another one though that I that I liked. Good one, Domer Grizz. But here here's another one that I saw, Ryan. Because yeah. I actually I actually think this one's a lot more possible. Jason Smith said, "Is there a chance to have two running backs with a thousand yards?" And we're just going to throw out the caveat right now. It depends on who they hire as the offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. But Ryan, of the guys that you and I believe to be legitimate candidates, we'll answer it that way. And I want to get your
2: opinion. I mean, yeah, if if. If both Logan Diggs and Aldrick Estime stay healthy for a full season, for sure it's possible. I mean, so because Aldric was almost at a thousand this year, right? He was like nine hundred something. And then what did Logan end with like eight something, right? So he was like pretty high up there as far as his total yards, too. So I mean Jason yeah, just they were, natural me- nine
1: twenty and eight twenty-two. Logan yeah. had eight twenty-two. And keep in mind Logan didn't play all
2: 13 games. Exactly. Exactly. So if if they were fully healthy. I would almost expect it almost uh, maybe expect is not the right word, but I would expect it to be very close if nothing else. Like at least one guy has a thousand yards. The other one has 900, right? Cause I think that you're going to have a pretty split volume perspective for those two guys. And I think that as long as the philosophy stays similar in the sense that we want to be a physical brand of football that wants to run the football at a high volume for sure. Like, I, I think that, it, especially if if the passing game also becomes more efficient then the yard per carry average probably goes up for both guys, and that makes it even less touches that you need to give them to get to that mark. So, yeah, I think it's extremely possible.
1: To me, two things, Ryan. Number one is with a better pass attack, it's not that the, it becomes less of less of an option. If you have a really good pass attack and a really efficient, explosive pass attack, your numbers are still going to be similar. You're just yards per carry are going to go way higher because people have to respect the pass game. I mean, Audrick was a 5'9", but Logan was a 5'0". I could see that jumping up to one of them's high sixes and the other one's around six. And all of a sudden the, the, you know, the, the carries go down and, and and all of a sudden the numbers are still up, you know? Sure. So um, those are the things I look at Ryan and say, Hey, you, you do that and all of a sudden you're better. For, for example, if Audric estimate has, a, Oh, he had 156 carries this year. If you take 11 carries away from him and, and he averages 6.9 yards per carry instead of 5.9, he's a thousand yards. You know, I mean, so that that right there is is, you know, again, proof that he is there. If Logan Diggs has 10 fewer carries and only has 155 and he goes up a yard per carry from five to six, he's at 930. So and, and that's dropping them in carries. If the offense is good, they may actually get more carries, even though they're throwing the ball more because they're going to have more long sustained drives. And and so I think all those things play into it, Ryan. So, yeah, I, and, and I when think we,
0: you-
1: go to right.
2: I was just going to say, I think the offensive line could also take a step up this year as right. well, so that that could be more efficiency in the run game as well. So, I think
1: the reason this may not happen and the reason I wouldn't bet on this happening is because of the presence of Chris Tyree and Jadarian Price and those other guys. I don't That's know fair. if you're going to see all the, all those two guys get the primary carries to the degree that they did this year. I think is something that could factor. The other thing that will keep it from happening is if Tyler Buckner's your quarterback at any point in time, because I think he'll take, he'll naturally take away some of those yards. In my yes. opinion. like we saw in the bowl game now again they they both they both ran pretty well in the bowl game you know which which is you know interesting you know audric had night or logan had 90 yards in the bowl game rushing uh audric had 95 yards in the bowl game and you know it's tyler still got his you know so tyler went out and and uh and, and had 61 of his own and you know, that puts two of those three guys on pace for a thousand yards. <laughs> so yeah. um, you just can't expect that you're going to rush for 280 yards in every single game. You know, exactly. that, that can be a little tough. In a in a team that's not a up tempo offense, you're still not going to have enough plays. So, re- re- really good questions today, man. I really I'm really liking these questions from everybody today.
2: All right, let's get to some more here. We got one from Joe Medina. Here we go. Joe says, Brian, do you think or no? If coach Marcus Freeman is grooming Mike Mickens to be the next defensive coordinator or is Mick perfect in his current role?
1: I don't believe he's, I don't believe he's being groomed per se. Do I think that, that Marcus Freeman knows that Mike Mickens is that's his next ultimate goal. Yeah. I would say that I think more of a co-coordinator situation would be the next step for Mike Mickens before being the guy. So let's say hypothetically that, that uh, Al Golden leaves this off season, I, I could see a scenario where even if they brought in a big name like Joe Leonard, a uh, Jim Leonard, excuse me, mm-hmm. that they'd still slap a co-coordinator tag on Mike Mickens, pass game, yeah, something, something yeah. like that. Just because yeah. it's like, hey, look, we need to we need to do right by him, but also he's earned the right to be more involved in kind of what we're doing. I could certainly see something like that, but I don't know if he's necessarily grooming him because honestly, that can create some issues. I'm the D coordinator and you're grooming this guy to replace me. Like, yeah, no, thank you. So you got to be careful with that. But I do think he knows that that's ultimately what Mike Mickens wants to be. But I also don't think Mike Mickens is just in a rush to do it for whatever. For me personally, for the next couple of years, I still want Mike Mickens number one priority to be coaching the corners. Yes. And that's why I don't love the idea of him being the defensive coordinator by himself, simply because it's going to naturally take away from the time you're spending coaching your position A co-coordinator role is still fit because it'll be like, okay, you're the co-coordinator as the secondary's coach, the corners coach. Okay, so your role is still going to be very similar to what you're already doing from a game prep standpoint. You know, you may just have a little bit more say in some of the coverage structures and things like that that you do. Uh, But his primary responsibility is still coaching the corners, and that's going to be important for the next couple of years in my view. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, good
2: question, Joe. Very good question. Here's one from Brian Hockney. Will Emmett Mosley be visiting this spring? Where do we stand with him currently?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, Brian, this is an interesting one. So, there, there was a big, I think there was a big overreaction a few weeks ago where there was an interview with Emmett where he talked about three schools and Notre Dame wasn't included and all that good stuff, right? So, in my opinion, personally, right now, Notre Dame is battling for Emmett Mosley, right? I do think that there's interest on both sides, right? Is this a foregone conclusion that Emmett Mosley has a double as a as a double um legacy? Double legacy. Is foregone conclusions gonna end up at Notre Dame? No, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. But is Notre Dame still battling for him? And does he still like Notre Dame? Yeah. We believe all that stuff is very true at this point. We do not have an update on this on the visit, but obviously that will be a Priority to try to get him on campus, but he has been on campus before. As a Cali kid, it's not like he's foreign to Notre Dame culture and the He was on campus last summer and he's been to I believe he's been to games before. I believe and and he's originally from Chicago. So I mean he's very he understands Notre Dame and obviously with his parents being who they are, he understands the program. So they're battling, man. It's just a question of you know, does the double legacy and all that type of stuff, like, does, how much does that mean to Emmett in the ultimate end, right? Or does he want to create his own legacy? Like, that's the conversation that needs to happen.
1: Yeah. Ryan, here's a quick one for you from uh, sure. Beef Eater. I'm, I'm going to ask this one from uh, Beef Eater, aka Toe Jam 1992. Does anyone know why Jarrett Patterson and Isaiah
2: Foskey did not play in the Senior Bowl? It, it's because, and they weren't the only two players that didn't, that chose not to play in the Senior Bowl. It's because, no one cares about the game. <laughs> I know people are going to be like, no oh, one cares, but it's talent scouts and evaluators don't care about the game. They don't. They really don't. I mean, the, the coverage of that game is you can't even get the senior bowl in all 22 film. You know, you can get the practices though, for sure. Cause that's what people care about the most to what I've liked them to still play in the game. Cause I thought both players had uneven weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I, that,
1: personally, that's the reason for me. That would be the reason for me. This is another chance for you to flash in a time. Because, yeah, they don't have the All-22 film, but if Isaiah Foskey goes out there and gets two sacks in the game, people are going to know about it. Right, I mean that's the reality of it. I, I,
2: th- I think that, that would appeal a little bit more, though, in my opinion, just from my experience. Like, I think that that would appeal a little bit more for the media perception, though, than the team, per- like the from the NFL perception. I don't think the NFL really cares about yeah. that game. Like, that's why so many scouts leave on Thursday. They don't care about that Friday walkthrough. They don't care about the Saturday here, game. Here, here's they,
1: my point, though, Ryan. Here's my yeah. point. Yep. When you didn't have a good week, it doesn't hurt you to go out there and play. That's my point. And if you go out there and have a a, a good game, you have a couple sacks, they're not going to be unaware of it, is my point. And if you like Foskey but you have questions, you're going to go watch that. You're going to pop in that film, right? And that's my point, right? And Jarrett Patterson, I think it probably means less for I'm more thinking Foskey here than Jarrett Patterson because I think offensive line play in a game like this is even one of the more irrelevant things from from what I think. But, yeah, I I just don't think either of them played well enough to – necessarily do that and and as, sure. especially foskey because like okay now you set out the bowl game you know and you set out the senior bowl game it's just i want a guy that wants to once compete like jerry patterson limped through a bowl game you know what i mean like i you know what dude you don't want to play in the game cool I, foskey's thing is just a little bit different for me and maybe that's because i have a little bit of feelings about him not playing in the bowl game but you know bright will anderson can play in his bowl game but you're you're too good for your you know it's just, that's more of an emotional reaction, but I'm not going to lie sure. to you. That's kind of a little bit how I feel.
2: Well, and I, th- I think that, I mean, to your point, I I think that evaluators are going to care a lot more about that, though, what you just said, right? The fact that he did skip out on the bowl game, I figure but that's going to be a question at the combine and in those top 30 visits, we're like, hey, man, you know, and, and again, they don't, not everybody holds it against you, sure. but like it is a conversation. It's part, of like, yeah, right. 100%, 100%. part of the data piece, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Part of the data piece. I think the Senior Bowl week is all a risk versus reward thing, right? It's like, yeah, it'd be great if Isaiah goes in there and has a couple sacks, but like, what if he gets hurt in the game sure. too? You know what I mean? Like, he get hurt in practice. He get could, hurt
1: walking could. through security at the airport. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so, um,
2: yeah, we'll see. Here's one from Ryan Schulte. Could you guys talk a little bit on how co-coordinators work together? I think there is some confusion on how it works. Maybe talk about the responsibilities are during prep and game, etc. Thank you. Now that varies. It's not the same for everybody.
1: Basic structure, Ryan. It's this, uh, and and you know this. It's it's the one one guy's going to be the play caller, the primary play, call, play caller. A lot of times when you have a true co-coordinator situation. Now, see sometimes a guy's a co-coordinator in name only. It's to get him a pay raise. But in a true co-coordinator situation, there will be times in games where that co-coordinator, "Hey, we're in the red zone. This is your deal. What do we like in here?" Or like one of the things we heard about Al Golden was he had a big hand in third down stuff with the Bengals. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's one of the things that we were told. So there's some of that, but there's a primary play caller. And that primary play caller usually is the ultimate decision maker when a staff is putting stuff together. So the co-coordinator on the other side's role is going to be sort of like, a, okay, you're my co-coordinator. I'm the linebacker's coach. You're the safety's coach. You're going to have a lot to say on the coverage structure, which means in your preparation, you have a lot of influence on what is this team doing outside the tackle box, Are they a three by one a lot? Do they motion a lot? Are they two by two? Are they, you know, what what are the different things they're doing there? You're breaking that down. You're getting their tendencies. You're getting their pass game tendencies. You're talking about the the players that they like, the guys they target. When they're in this three by one look and this guy lines up at number three, that's what they're going to run. Okay. So we're playing Bama 2020. When Devontae Smith lines up as the number three in a three by one, they run three routes with that. Right. And those are the things you know. Like, I remember having a conversation with Mike Elko once, and he was talking about a mistake that they made. I think it was in the Stanford game. They got beat on the coverage. And he was like, It's because the, the safety did not move in a foot. I'm like, a foot. Okay. Explain that one to me. He goes, Yes. Because when their receiver reduced the split there to there, they only ran two routes. And they were both, I think, like in breaking routes. And the, the safety didn't squeeze down enough, and that allowed that extra little bit of separation to get beat on a post or something like that, right? Like, that's something that – now, Mike Elko was a, the coordinator, but he was the safety's coach. So he was looking at a lot of that. That's something that they co-coordinate who's involved with sort of the perimeter will do. Or you can have a guy that's the pass game coordinator. I kind of like the structure of perimeter versus box more so than run pass. And then what you'll do is is you'll have, you know, D-line coaches is lurking on, you know, working on different things, what the line does and splits and things like that. But then you come together and you guys talk about what they do. And the 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 other co-coordinator may be more involved if he's the linebackers coach, let's say, he's more involved with some of the run game stuff, backs out of the backfield, tight ends out of the backfield, stuff like that. So then you guys get together and you kind of put it all together. And 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 it's really what a lot of teams already do anyway. You know, your O-line coach and your running backs coach and maybe your tight ends coach are working a lot on the run game, you know, evaluation and breaking down an opponent tendencies. Here's what they do up front. Here's the weak spots. And then the quarterbacks coach and the receivers coach may be working on the pass game stuff and all that uh, for the defense. But then you got to come together and then you've got to figure out what's best for what you guys are going to do. So you'll get together and you go over scouting reports. Here's the formations that they like to do. Here's what here's what their tendencies are against a team like us. You know, when they play teams that are four, two, fives, here's what they tend to have tendencies for. Uh, here's so you the beginning of the week, it's breaking down the formations, the personnel, what kind of temp motions and shifts. Hey, they really like to use their tight ends to gain leverage on the outside, and they they really only do it out of this, or they like to do it out of this, and then you're breaking all that down. Then as you get into the week, Here's their third down tendencies. Here's their red zone tendencies. Here's their coming out tendencies, which means, you know, coming out to start a drive. Here's your backed up tendencies. Here's their first down of a you know, first play of a series. Here's what they do after sudden change. They are a high, you know, taking a shot team if you get sudden change from the 40 in, you know, your own 40 in. They they do this. Or maybe, hey, they're a big take-a-shot team if it's inside the 50. So those are all the tendencies that you do. And there's not one guy that's going to do all that. You have to be able to trust the assistant coaches to get their bit of data. You bring it all together. And then it's up to the main coordinator to kind of say, okay, here's the direction that we're going. If it's a co-coordinator situation, that's a real co-coordinator situation, then you're going to rely on that guy a lot heavier for that part of his job than you would for uh, if he was just a co-coordinator name only. He'd still have an important role. But once you guys give me all the data, then I'm formulating the plan to do it, right? And so I think that's kind of how co-coordinators work. It's not a whole lot different than what you're already doing. It's just the co coordinator the other co-coordinator may just have a lo- little bit more of a say in his aspect of the game. So I think a lot of people look at co-course and say, that doesn't work. Like somebody on the message board yesterday, Ryan said, you know, if, if you don't, if you have co you don't, you don't have any leadership. And I'm like, okay, 2016 national champions had co-coordinators on offense. The 2017 <laughs> national champions had co-coordinators, I think, on defense. The 2018 national championships had champions had co-coordinators on offense. Uh, The 2019 um, uh, team had an offensive coordinator and a pass game coordinator who had split reps and responsibilities. The 2020 Alabama team, I believe, also had co-coordinators on defense. And then the last two years, Georgia's had co-coordinators on defense both times. Yeah. So... You may have that feeling of, well, it's like the whole, well, if you, you only, if you got two quarterbacks, you, you don't, you don't have any uh, too Alabama bo- would like too many to,
2: voices in the room. I would, Alabama thing, yeah. would
1: like to disagree with you when they had Jalen hurts to a tongue of and, uh, and um, uh, Mac Jones all in the same team. No, sure. they had three great quarterbacks. They can only just play one. So that's why I say like, you get these little catchphrases that may be true in a lot of instances, but they're not always true. And the game evolves. And there's so much more to, to the other side of the ball. The game is so much more detailed, even in college, that you, the more talented eyes you have on certain things, the better. So this notion that you got to have one coordinator, that's just not how the game works right now. The, the best, best teams in college football are primarily teams that have co-coordinators. They do. There's one play caller. And in order for it to work, Ryan, you have to very, have a very clear hierarchy of who's making decisions. Right? right, and there has to be
2: very good communication because you don't want like five dudes in your just yapping in your the whole game. Right, that's what I was going to say. Too much, too many voices can be a bad thing. But correct, that- correct. Just because you have co-coordinators doesn't mean you have too many voices. Right, right. exactly. Bingo. It's you got to do it right, and right. some teams
1: don't do it right, and some teams do, and that's that's my
2: stance on that. So, Ryan, anything you like to add to that? That I that I pretty much get it no i mean no i I think that as long as and this is a whole coaching staff thing it's not even just a co-coordinator thing as long as people are comfortable in the role that they have and you have that understanding of this is my role that is your role i'm not against any formation of it right like that's that's what it comes down to whatever helps me win best i'm in i'm in favor of like at the end of the day man and so we have seen teams that are very successful with one guy As a coordinator, we've seen teams that are successful with two guys as decision makers. It as long as it's not competing conversations, right? As long as it's not you're hearing one thing in the quarterback's ear, and then here comes another guy saying something completely different than the other, where you're getting different messages, that's where that whole dynamic fails. Is that when there's too many voices?
1: Yep, good stuff. Very good stuff. All right, here's one from Jordan Schreiber. This is a this is going to be a little bit in the Wayback
2: Machine, Ryan. So I want not you go and read is. that one. Jordan Schreiber asks, can you compare Tobias Merriweather to Michael Floyd and Golden Tate coming out of high school?
1: They're all very different players. Yes, very. Um, I'll kind of work backwards. So Golden Tate was basically a converted running back. Uh, yeah. Golden Tate as a junior in high school had over 1,000 yards rushing and 1,000 yards receiving. He was more of a running back. Uh, and then move to receiver. He also had a running back build. I mean, K- he, Golden Tate he was, was like built five,
2: more. 10, 190 yeah. something. Like he yeah, was yeah.
1: built more like Aeneas Williams than he was Michael Floyd or Tobias Smith Weather. You know, yep. uh, very thick legs. He was more early on a sort of a, a, a vertical after the catch guy, so he could beat you deep, and then he could do things with the ball in his hands. He wasn't. A, he was a very sloppy route runner. Uh, if he wasn't getting the ball, he would kind of jog down the field. He was not a natural wide receiver. And that's partly why he wasn't as dominant in the NFL as he maybe could have been. Now he was still good in the NFL. I think he made a Pro Bowl and had a, I think what a couple thousand yard seasons during his career. Yeah, he was good with the Lions. Yep. But he was never like a great, great player because he just wasn't a natural receiver. He was, he was a, he was a, a guy that honestly I would have loved to have seen Golden Tate in a modern offense. I mean, e- even though he was not that old, I mean, but even in 2009, offenses looked a lot different. I mean, Chip Kelly was kind of doing his own thing, and there weren't a lot of people doing that back then. Sure. There's a lot more people doing that now. Uh, Michael. Hey, can Floyd, you imagine him
2: in like the Debo Samuel role oh, that he yeah. plays oh, with like man. the 49ers? Like yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like if he was yeah. if he was 23 in this era, that's exactly what he would be. There, Ryan that's there's a, a few point.
2: players I would love to see, like like Percy Harvin's another where like I would love Rocket to see S-Male. in that role today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the other part of the the other part of it, Ryan, is Michael Floyd moving on to Michael Floyd. He is a he is a legit big outside boundary receiver. He was six three, he was like 190 coming out of high school. But you could see he had long arms, broad shoulders, just a big hands. He was a great one-on-one contested catch guy, uh, just, a, just a a just outstanding. And honestly, to me, part of the best high school receiving class I've ever seen. I've still, I've ever seen. I mean, Michael Floyd, Julio Jones, A.J. Green, DeAndre Brown, Dan Buckner, DeVere Posey, Justin Blackman. I mean, it was just an insane receiver class. I could list 20, 25 more guys. But uh, I think Arkansas had like Jarius Wright was in that class and Greg Childs. Yeah. Remember that really good receiver yes. core they had back then, too? They R- were all in that class.
2: I was just talking about Justin Blackman yesterday, man. He is one of the that. biggest what-ifs ever, man. He was so good at Oklahoma State. Three-star like, was kid silly.
1: was ranked as like the 90th receiver in the country, something crazy like that. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy good receiver class. But Floyd was a one-on-one guy. He was actually a little bit better after the catch than maybe sometimes he got credit for because he had that really goofy, like not goofy, awkward running style. Yeah. You know, he just had a really weird gallop. He was pretty good after the catch. I mean, one of the biggest plays he made in his career uh, was a punt return against Florida State in the uh, Champ Sports Bowl. Tobias Merriweather is tall. He's skinny. He's long. He's smooth. He's fluid. Michael Floyd was powerful. I mean, He was all power. Tobias is smooth you know he's a he's a vertical he's a great route runner you know things like that Michael Floyd was a good route runner but he was more about body positioning you know because he was so big he was more of a body position guy Tobias is more of a route runner so they were very very different players coming out all outstanding talents and honestly Tobias Merriweather got the highest grade for me coming out of high school since Floyd in the 08 class I mean he was that good for miles Floyd was better though Floyd was a Floyd was a, a phenomenal Flo- player.
2: He he had that he had that mentality, man, Michael Floyd, where it was just like anything yeah. in the air is it's like it's honestly, even though Golden's completely different. Golden Tate had that little swagger oh, to yeah. him too, man, where he was like, I am going to catch this football in space. I'm gonna make you look stupid right now. Like that's yeah. yeah. All I think all I think most great receivers need that too, man. That little bit of yeah. swagger, like competitiveness, like that ball's mine, man. That ball's mine. Yeah. Somebody
1: in the chat, Terry Tyler, just brought up a name of a guy that I would love to see in the modern game. It was uh, Peter Warwick from Florida State. Yes. He would be really good. Like in a modern air raid, he'd catch 100 passes. He'd <laughs> be so good. Like if he played for like Art Briles at Baylor or nowadays like for Lincoln Riley or for Garrett Riley or for Phil Longo or something
2: like that, he'd be a 100 catch guy. I mean, Peter, Peter Warwick was oh. dynamic, man. Even when he was in the NFL, obviously he wasn't nearly as good as he was at Florida State, but like he right. was dynamic when he for the touches he got.
1: Well, the, the reality is, Ryan, that's what I would say. Speed is not as important in college football as it is in the NFL. I mean, Peter Warwick was a four-five-five guy, if I remember correctly, because yeah. that was one of the things that kind of people were like, "Oh, gee, I don't, uh, I don't know about that." You know, he he didn't run a great forty time, but I mean, he was still really good and he was re- yeah 458 is what Peter Warrick ran in the at the combine but man he was a he was so smooth and and he was so sudden and elusive he was just an outstanding talent man he was really good i'd love to see him in modern offense i really would he just was small for that era at receiver yeah. you know and when you're small and not fast it it can it can have some problems it can have some definite
2: problems there's some really some great questions today man here's a good one from crazy like a foskey Last year, Marcus Freeman and co swung for the fences in recruiting Keon Keeley, Caleb Downs, Peyton Bowen, Richard Young, Dante Moore. Is your sense that they're going to keep swinging or get more conservative after those misses? They're going to keep keep swinging, swinging. then I don't want them. Like that's point blank to it, right? They're going to keep
1: swinging. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is there's just not a lot of Keons and guys like that that are fits for Notre Dame in this year. Like the unique thing about this group is, like with Keon, uh, with Caleb Downs, with Jason Moore, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna go with Jason Moore here, not Dante. Uh, oh, with gosh. guys like you know, I think he means Dante, but I'm going Jason Moore just as an, sure. you know to those guys were Notre Dame kids, like they fit Notre Dame in a lot of ways. Now they made other choices, but they were fits at Notre Dame, which is why there was a legitimate interest from them in Notre Dame. There's there's not as many of those kind of guys in this class, and I think the staff has kind of moved on from some of those guys because like yeah, that guy doesn't want to be here. That guy's asking for this, he's asking for that. But they're still they're still finding those guys that that are that way. Like they they haven't backed down for Mike Matthews. Now are they going to get Mike Matthews? No. Have they backed down for Mike Matthews? No. You know there's the there there's plenty of kids like that that they're going after. It's just they know that they're not going to you know some of those guys are not going to get. Uh, they're swinging for the fence with Ryan you know Ryan Wingo. That's one that yep. they're still swinging for the fence for. Uh, there's Justin Scott. I mean there's plenty of those, uh, Sammy Brown. They're mm-hmm. still playing those guys that they're probably not going to get a Sammy Brown. Sure. But they're still they're still taking their shot, right? But you got to be smart about who you're taking your shot with. And I just don't think as many of those top ten guys in this year's class are Notre Dame fits as there was in last year's class. In my opinion. Makes sense, and that's going to happen from time to time. So, yep. but the point is, yes, they're they're still taking their swings and, and yep. as they should be. And to Ryan, Ryan, you nailed it. If they're not going to, then I don't want them
0: because exactly. they're not
1: going
2: to win a championship at Notre Dame. Yeah, absolutely, no right. doubt. No got doubt. one from Max Ott. Max says, "Sorry, get, just got here, but I have two questions. One, will they ever increase the amount of coaches allowed on a staff? Two, I know it's a new rumor, but what are your thoughts on Mike Uricich? Uh So, the first one,
1: I have, I did, I have seen a couple people tweet that there's at least some talk about expanding the number of coaches allowed. I, you, you can't get too crazy with it because uh, here's the problem: the more you expand the number of coaches." The more coaches are going to move up the levels, which means there's going to be worse coaches at the lower levels, and I don't think that's good for the game. But I would be okay with one more because what tends to happen right now, Ryan, is if you have 10 assistants, a lot of teams want to have a special teams coordinator, which means one side of the ball is going to have one fewer coach. And so I think if you go to 11, then I can have a a, 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 a quarterbacks coach, running backs coach, receivers coach, tight ends coach, and O line coach on on, on offense and then on defense, I can have a defensive line coach, a linebacker's coach, a corner's coach, a safety's coach. And then now you have more freedom to have either A, a coordinator who doesn't coach a position, or B, a coach that can be more of a specialist. Because there's so much more packages now where you can have a rovers coach. Like One of the things that Mike Elko did is he did a really good job of using his GA roles and analyst roles, especially GA roles, for that rover. And so his new D coordinator at, at Duke, he just hired Tyler Santucci. Early in his career at Notre Dame, and then I think at AM, he was actually a GA, but he was the Rovers coach as the GA. Wasn't Santucci he, you know, a
2: offensive lineman? Is
1: that no, Santucci? that's Dan Santucci. Dan Santucci.
2: You're right. Tyler you're Santucci
1: right. didn't play at Notre Dame. He was just a, gotcha. he came with Elko. And so he just so I mean, but but that's the thing, is his early role as a coach was sort of that specialized role. Cause it think about the rover. He's not a linebacker, he's not mm. a safety, he's just kind of his own deal. And, and so maybe you could have a special teams guy that also coaches that. But I just feel like it would be better to have um, a 10th assistant coach, like offense, defense. So five, you can go five and five if you want to. And then you have a special teams coach. And I just think that's better. But you start getting past 11, Ryan, and now you're getting into, OK, now you're just, it, you know what it's like when I was a kid. I mean, this is going into like, I think coming out of T-ball. This is how absurd it was back when I was a kid uh, growing up in, in, in Lima. I went to Bath uh, Middle School and you just had these dads that wanted to be like, I'm going to be a championship little league coach, right? So my dad gets a call from this guy who's since passed away. So I won't say his name because it, it's a negative story. And he asked my dad, he goes, hey, I'd like for you to be one of my assistant coaches. And my dad's like, okay, great. Yeah, I'll be one of your assistant coaches. So my dad goes to the draft. Because they would draft, you'd have your assistant coach and they draft the kids in the league, right? Sure. And the guy walks in and he's got like 13 assistant coaches. <laughs> and it's like the 13 best players in the league. And my dad's like, I'm not going to have my kid be part of that. Like, what lesson am I teaching my son? Oh, he can go win a little league, you know, a little no town no one cares about league championship by cheating. So my dad was like, screw it. And so he went and coached his own team, of course. So then I got to play on the team that sucks, right? Because my dad's trying to make a point, but I'm glad he did it because I learned a ton of lessons about it and I'm a better man now than I was then. But it's just like, you get those coaches are going to be like that. I'm just hiring this guy away from that school. So he's not coaching against me anymore. And I just think it, 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 and then you start bringing up coaches who honestly, in some degrees, there's going to be chance. There's in some ways, there's more opportunities for maybe coaches that are lower levels that are talented, but that only goes so far, you know? And, and so to me, I think it kind of dilutes it a little bit and you know, So I wouldn't go past 11 or 12, Ryan. That's about as far as I would go. And I think 11 for me is that sweet spot for, for assistant coaches. What Makes I would sense. say is allow analysts to be more involved in practicing. You can have two analysts on each side of the ball that can do on-field work. Because then what that can do is you can either go hire some retread coach or you can go get some young up-and-comer who is going to help. Like So then it's like, okay, if I have an analyst that can work with the defense and I go hire some 24-year-old kid, former player, I think has a lot of potential, uh, and I can make him an analyst so he can kind of learn, and then he becomes the position coach for the coordinator's position so he can help the coordinator. So I think things like that are more ways I would go where you're creating opportunities for those young up-and-coming players or former players. Uh, That would be something I'd be interested in is you can have one – You know, spot on your staff that's an analyst role that can go to a former player of yours that can do on field work. It's almost like kind of like you're, you're, you know, you're you're kind of got your uh, building up coaches type of thing. I would look more to stuff like that than just to say everybody gets 14 assistants or 13 or 12 (laughs) assistants. You know, that, that stuff I'd be more interested in. Yep. Thoughts on that part
2: before I go to number two? No, I, I was just going to say that I'm all for there being equality on both sides of the football. I don't think it makes any sense that you can have X amount on offense and X amount on defense that is a lower number, right? So, I, I think that it makes sense. I mean, if it was at 11, to your point, it's you know five offense, five defense. I, I'd like the equality there because I just think that I just think it's weird. Like, why would why should I be allowed to have five assistants on one side and only four on the other? Like, it doesn't make any sense why is that a thing right like i mean just logically speaking like that doesn't make any sense to me so you you don't need that many
1: coaches and i just think that i would rather do things to allow younger up-and-coming coaches like you can even say this like okay you can bring an analyst in but he can't be a former head coach the on-field analyst can't be over 30 or or unless he's you know coming out of the nfl and he can't be a former head coach like because then you start seeing bama just like loading up on these former rehabilitated head coaches and it's like dude they it's insane. You know so I mean you could put some restrictions on it and I'd be okay with stuff like that because it would it would it would create an environment where you're now trying to get these coaches to put more emphasis on you know helping former players or younger coaches kind of come up in the game, right? So I'd be cool with stuff like that. I think those things would be be something I could get on board. You know, add one more full-time coach and then just build on the analyst role a little bit more are things that I would like to see Ryan for me. For sure. The second part, uh, I know it's a rumor, but what are your thoughts on Mike Yursich? Uh, Number one, I don't put much into that rumor. I don't. So I'll just leave that, that part there. What do I think about Mike Yursich outside of that question? Um, As the OC at Penn state, Ryan, I'll be honest. I didn't like the hire. I didn't love him. You know, it was an okay hire at Penn state. It wasn't a needle moving hire. But I'll be honest with you, the last couple of years, he's grown on me a little bit, especially this year. Uh, pretty good balance. Uh, not great assistant coaches. Pretty good balance. He's done a good job recruiting. You know, he, he recruited Drew Aller pretty hard. Uh, did a nice job as the pass game coordinator in 2019 at Ohio State. You know, again, that was primarily Ryan Day, but that pass game was pretty good. That was the year Justin uh, um, Fields Filtz. had 41 touchdowns and three picks. It's pretty good. He's bad. a good quarterbacks coach, I believe and he got out a lot, a lot out of Sean Clifford who's not very talented to be <laughs> honest did, with you.
2: Man. Hey, and Sean Clifford still went to the East-West Shrine game though, so there yeah, you go.
1: <laughs> so he he did a nice job there. Uh he's a good coach. I think he's a good coach. Not a great coach. He's a good coach. He does some good things. But I don't view him as a I don't I don't buy into the rumors today based on the the sources that I've had. We'll see if that changes, but based on what I've been heard, I don't put a lot of stock in that rumor as as of right now. All right, next one from
2: Archer Archer, resident Ohio State fan, how are you, sir? How would you feel about having a JV season for the spring? I'd love to watch more college football while waiting for the fall to start.
1: I would be very much against that because that'd be, a lot, that'd be way, messy.
2: That'd be messy. The you know? only
1: way to make that happen is, is you'd have to have you'd have to have guys who didn't play in the fall mm-hmm. and early enrollees, right? And so, how you wouldn't have enough guys to field a team. Number one. And number two, there's a lot of travel expenses that would be for a JV college football schedule. This yeah. isn't like you're hopping on a bus and you're driving a bunch of, you know, like when I was when I was a freshman, and sophomore, I went to school in Virginia Beach. We had like 10 high schools in Virginia Beach. Right. It's not like that right now. You know, you're still going to have to travel a lot. I mean, say, well, you know, California, you know, USC could play all California teams. Yeah, but there's a parts of California they have to fly to. Right. Like they're not, it's a long freaking bus ride to go up to San Francisco or down, you know what I mean? And, and so I just, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily view it as something I would be about. Uh, I, I, I like spring ball the way that it is. I would say what you could maybe do, Ryan, what I would like is I would say maybe add three practices because there's so many kids that are early enrollees now. I would maybe add like three to five practices onto the spring that are, freshman red shirt, freshman only or or freshman and early enrollee practices only you know where you can do you know you can maybe put some restrictions on them two of them have to be walkthroughs only two of them can be padded so, so like a,
2: a rookie mini camp type of yeah thing. Kind of what yeah and means.
1: maybe even do yeah. that at the beginning of fall camp yeah. You know, where that's. I think rookie manikin, that's a great, great. It could um, be like a
2: crash course and like yes. just some of the basics. So and, You can give them like yeah.
1: five practices. Two of them have to be walkthroughs. Only maybe, yeah. you know, one of them's padded or, you know, maybe none of them are padded. Maybe that takes some of the pressure off where you're going out there, you're installing your offense, you're installing your defense, you're teaching them how you do things. I think something like that would be awesome. But as far as like having it, a JV schedule and then televising it, uh, No. No, yeah. I would be. A, I would be a, logistically Archer. It just doesn't make a lot of sense scheduling wise, and just how do you make up the roster? Because like in high school, you can do it. Because why did JV team and, and guys playing both ways? You only needed like twenty five dudes on your roster
2: because yeah. like half your guys are playing both ways. You're not doing that in college. And, and to fill out that JV roster, to your point, Brian, is you don't have enough numbers with like just the freshmen. Might have throw like some sophomores in there and stuff, right. and then, and then if, then if, if I'm like, a hybrid, okay, it's played. Yeah, But then if I'm a high ranked sophomore that maybe hasn't played a ton at Alabama, let's say for instance, it's a little like, I I have to be honest, like if I was a five star sophomore that just hasn't played at Alabama and I have to go play in a JV game, I'd be like, man, this is what I signed up for. Like, this is what I'm doing here. Like I'm playing JV football at Alabama. Like, nah, you know? So I I don't think it really helps the morale, I guess, of some players on the team as well, that you're quantified as a JV player, you know? So, yeah.
1: I'll answer this one real quick from Landon Burge. Do you think Nick Saban hired Tommy Reese in hopes that Sam Hartman and possibly CJ Carr would come with him? No, I don't think that anything to do with it. I'd say if, if you were going to tell me that it's one or the other, I'd say it'd probably more likely for Hartman than Carr. Sure. That would make more sense, but I don't, I don't think that's why he did it. I don't. Cause,
2: cause obviously they, they already had Julian Sane in the class and he's right. a player they like, right? So, right. I mean, yeah. Would I put it past
1: Saban? I don't put anything past Nick Saban. <laughs> But I don't think that's why he did it. I don't think. <laughs> I,
2: I, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm think not, that's why he this, did
1: it that I'm not saying that the question is outrageous. I don't think it's outrageous because that's how Nick Saban no. is, man. He'll hire coaches so that somebody else doesn't have him. He'll sign high school recruits so that so that his opponents don't get him. I just think the offensive coordinator hire Not. – I'll say this. If all things were equal and he thought maybe this guy could bring in a transfer quarterback, I think that might have factored in. But I don't think it's like, well, if you can't get Hartman, I don't want you. It could right. be just like an add bonus. Well, maybe we might get Sam Hartman out of the deal too. I don't, but I don't think that's the case. I
2: don't. Yeah, and also, I mean, they had a shot if they wanted Sam Hartman, right? I mean, because I don't know, because Alabama could have thrown around a little something to try to right. get Sam Hartman. Like I don't know if he, they had tremendous amount of interest in Hartman is kind of what I'm right. saying. So.
0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Let's see here. Uh, This is one from John A1. We kind of addressed this recently, but we'll address it quickly here again, Ryan, from John A1.
2: Notre Dame seems to be willing to compete financially with other top top football programs. What are areas the athletic department needs to improve? Does Notre Dame need to build a budget for more analysts or facilities?
1: Notre Dame absolutely needs to build a greater budget for the non-football coaching roles. Notre Dame is 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 competitive when it comes to assistant coaches' salaries. They don't have enough analysts, in my opinion. And a bigger part is they're starting to slowly build up other parts, like they have that um, uh, lady. What's her name? She's doing like the videos with the players, uh, teaching them how to cook. Oh, and cook I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know um,
2: what you're talking about. I think it's uh, it a line. I've seen. I've seen them on Twitter. They're pretty cool. Yes. Yes. they're pretty cool. Yes,
1: like I'm all about that stuff. And here's why I think that's awesome. Because not only are you teaching kids good heating habits, but with a lot of kids in college, if it's anything like when I went to college, I was one of the few kids that knew how to do even laundry, much less knew how to cook when I went to college. So, I mean, we always say we want to teach these, these people how to grow up and, and, and be productive members of society. Well, Notre Dame players are going to end their college careers knowing how to cook and eat healthy. That's important. That may not seem important to some people, but that's important. You're teaching them how to properly, you know, I'm, I'm watching Xavier Watts, like cut, and I've talked to a family member and like, apparently Xavier loves to cook, but he's like cut with a knife. And he's, I'm like, dude, that's so unsafe. Keep the tip of the knife down. You know what I mean? I'm just busting his chops about it. Um, but they're learning things. Those are valuable lessons, you know, for, so, so let's say you, you marry a woman and she's not a good cook, or maybe she has a job and and you're, yeah and in, in in or my my wife's a very good cook she just doesn't like to cook and so but i but i love to cook you know but but who knows where that skill may come in or maybe both parents work a lot so they have to mix up who's making food for the kids and you don't have a thing where when mom's home she makes really nice dinners but when dad's home he's throwing together bologna sandwiches and bowls of cereal for dinner you know like my dad can't cook a lick you know I mean the yeah. only thing he could cook is fry bologna that's it so if mom was out fried of town on a work bologna. trip dad was making we were having Like, here's a funny story. So when we were kids, like, my parents were very involved in, like, teaching us how to do things. Now, my mom didn't make us cook, but, like, my mom would be like, hey, Brian, I can't make your dad's eggs right. So she'd have me flip his eggs because I was really good at flipping fried eggs. My mom knew how to make fried eggs, but she was trying to teach me something, right? Mom was out of town on some business thing. So dad's having us make dinner. I'm pretty sure we had fried uh, fried bologna and mac and cheese. Here's the problem. My dad didn't know you had to drain the water out of it. So my sister puts in the butter and the cheese. And then when she drains it out, we couldn't understand why the macaroni was still pale. Uh, right. But see, that's what I'm saying. My dad didn't know how to cook. Nobody ever taught my dad how to cook, you know, where for me, when I was his age, I didn't have kids, but I'd have been able to, to do that. So I think that's great. I think expanding the nutrition program is a must, not just teach them how to cook, but then making sure that they have all the things they need. Uh, to make sure that they can do those things, I think is a, another thing needs to be built up. I wouldn't mind seeing Matt Bayless get another assistant or two. I think uh, uh, the recruiting operation needs a little bit more. Uh, I would say I would love to kind of have someone kind of come in to take over Chad Bowden's role to a degree and then let Chad maybe become more of an overall roster manager type of guy. General manager. He's, still, he's yeah. still heavily involved in the recruiting, but he's you know also having more of a say there. I think a lot of that stuff is where Notre Dame still needs to do better. I think facilities-wise, they spend a lot of money to upgrade the facilities. Uh, they're still working on raising money to up the, upgrade the upgrade the Goog, so that's important, but they're already working on that. I think a big – and I've also talked about this before. I think they really need to invest in sort of a mental health aspect of it, especially now with all these demands on these kids, with NIL and all this other kind of stuff. Like, Some I mean, of it's making sure these kids are managing their lives you know, yeah. and, and and because these kids can, we think that we see, we see these kids, right? Like you look at Blake Fisher and you think just this giant of a man, powerful, strong and great personality, but he's still 19. He's still 20. Yeah. He's still got the weight of the world on his shoulders. It'd be nice to know that there's a, pl- there's people that are specifically looking to say, let me, let me pull Blake aside and talk to him. Or they just have sort of regular check-ins with kids. Hey, how you doing? And then it doesn't become, if, if you had something like that, where there's like regular check-ins then it doesn't become, Ooh so-and-so had to go see the team psychiatrist, you know, but it's like they all got to check in. It becomes
2: taboo. It's like, oh, but, wow, Ryan has to go to the guidance council. What's that about, man? (laughs) We're announcing, hey, you got
1: to do your regular check-in, and then that's a chance for you to kind of, you know, open up where it doesn't – because there's still that stigma, right or wrong, there's still that stigma. Oh, man, that guy's soft. He's got to go. Now, not as many people are like that today as when we were kids, but it still exists. Yeah. And especially like in social media. So, you know, let somebody get wind of that on social media and see what they do. But if every kid has to kind of do this, this is just part of your thing. And I wouldn't call her a psychiatrist. I'd give her some other kind of name. You know, I think there's merit to those type of things as well. So yeah. I, I think there's, those are the things that I think are the most impactful to what Notre Dame needs right now is all the, is, is the non-coaching aspects to really build up their entire bodies, minds, and spirits. I think those are, those are big things that I would invest a lot of money. Like, One of the greatest failures of our society in the last hundred years, you know, because obviously we once we got past like some of the original sins of our country and all that other kind of stuff. Right. One of the biggest I'd say 50 years, one of the biggest like just things that you just look at shame of our country is how we have treated our soldiers that come back from war. And how we just don't have the the infrastructure in place to make sure that they're okay. you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not to that degree with sports, but to a degree, there are certain characteristics, just not as strong as I'm being shot at and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But there's still a lot of things that happen to these guys where it's like, look, they need somebody to talk to. They need somebody to check on them. That, Trauma, especially the yeah. transition where I'm not playing in the NFL anymore. I got to transition to being a, a non-athlete anymore. That's tough for some kids. That was tough for me. I was very blessed that I got to go right into coaching, but Ryan, right. I'm telling you, I'd have struggled. Out of college, if I wasn't coaching, because that was my whole identity for my whole life was athlete, athlete, athlete.
2: Well, I I got hurt when I was a freshman. I had to stop playing pretty much after my freshman year, and I, I literally was like playing semi pro football after that because I was just depressed not being able to play football anymore. Man, like absolutely depressed. And for a little while, I was just kind of like trying to figure out how to stay close to the game. So I actually got into coaching too. I was like. 23, 24, when I was like, I, can I volunteer to coach at my high school at first, right? I mean, that stuff happens all the time, right? And it's just – it's very sad. It really is because, mm-hmm. like you said, you make an identity for yourself. And, it, you know, people could say, like, that's dumb. Like, why would you do that? But, like, that's all I knew, right? Like, I was a football right. player. I love football. I watched football. I studied football. I. That's just all it was. So, yep. I'm with you on that. Here's a funny question, Ryan. I, I
1: just yep. got to bring this one up. This is hilarious.
2: From Irish blood. If you had to choose between the triple option or the turtle mesh, <laughs> turtle mesh. That's funny. Which one would cause you to cheer for Michigan first?
1: <laughs> triple option.
2: The triple oh, I hate option. The mesh, man. I yeah. hate the mesh. I hate, I hate it as well. I mean,
1: but but I would. Yeah. I'd rather have that than. You can recruit to that a lot easier than you can recruit to the triple
2: option. Yeah. I, I I respect the triple option because it, there's a lot of teams that need the triple option, right? It does help some teams. That mesh yeah. thing doesn't help anybody, in my opinion. Like, what is what is? I, I don't think it, I don't think it helps. I mean, I hate if, it. re, it's annoying. It's so annoying. Yeah, I, I love it. people who are like, "Oh, Notre Dame start running the mesh. Why? What does the mesh bring to the? Well, Notre if, Dame if, if he if Josh look if Sam Hartman wanted to play in the mesh, why
1: would he? Why would he come? Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he just stay at Wake Forest? It just doesn't yeah. make any sense." Well, so and, I'd and probably it's like, just stop. I'd probably just stop like watching football before I'd go root for Michigan, though. In football, right. I'm not
2: well, lie. exactly. I mean, I would never root for Michigan, but Michigan and USC, right. no, thank you. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm all right, man. Pick somebody else. Hard like, pass. Michigan Hard State pass. or Rutgers or something. Like maybe we could have a conversation, but like Michigan, yeah. absolutely not. No, thank you. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd not be about that. I would not be about that. So, Ryan,
1: here's an interesting one here from Tavis McKay.
2: Okay. His question is, thoughts on the Pac-12 signing up San Diego State and SMU to replace USC and UCLA? I, San Diego State's an interesting one to me. It is. I mean, because that it is a – regionally it makes sense, right? Like that's mm-hmm. where the Pac-12 is. That's a West Coast team. And I think San Diego State, when they have the right coaches in place, is a very competitive football team, which I think could get – I mean, you're still – you know they've still been producing pretty good talent i mean they just had cameron thomas last year that was drafted i think a top 50 pick who was a really good defensive end coming out of there and i mean was it this year they weren't as good but last year i think they went like 11 and 2 right under pretty yeah. hoke so like they did yeah. a pretty well, good team
1: and they were even better under rocky long than they are under pretty yes. hoke but yes to your point yeah. smu no that just it doesn't make sense smu dipping into texas is not going to help you a whole lot with SMU, it would be different if you had like TCU or something like that. Uh, but for me, I like the San Diego State one because you, you're yeah. getting the very southern part of California, right? I think that's a decent decent size. It's a relatively ap- apathetic market, but you know there's some money there and some fandom there. That one would make sense, I think. If I were to say the other team, I would probably look more towards like a Fresno, yeah, um, a Boise State, something like that. Before I'd go to SMU.
2: Because ge- ge- geographically, it just makes more sense. Right. Well, and like, SM- and, and
1: like the thing with SMU is you say, well, we're getting the Dallas market. Are you? Are you yeah. really? Do you know Do a lot of love people SMU in football Dallas football down there? Yeah. yeah. You know a lot of people in Dallas. I mean, if if that if if they were that impactful in the Dallas market, the Big Twelve would have taken them up. Sure. But you know, a lot of people in Dallas are going to say, I'm not going to watch that Texas TCU, you know, Texas Alabama game or that TCU uh, Oklahoma State game. I'm going to watch SMU
2: against Cal. You know, that's like, that's like, um, it's like kind of like, like UTSA, right? It's like UTSA is doing a really good job, but like people in San Antonio really care about about UTSA. Right, right. And so to me, that's why kind of,
1: you know, maybe Fresno, get another, another Northern California market, you know, maybe get a, maybe get a Boise state. I don't think there's a whole lot of other places that I would make a lot of sense. I think the only other thing that might make sense is if you could get one of those big FCS teams to come up. You know, yep. but even those teams aren't great. I mean, Montana's not that great anymore. And what kind of market is that? You know, I don't think Cal Poly is that team. I don't think Sacramento State's that team. You know, right. I don't think Sacramento State does anything for you that Fresno wouldn't do for you. Sure. So I think Fresno and or Boise, along yep. San Diego State's a, a no-brainer to me. That one makes a ton of sense. But the other yep. one would be. Well, Boise State's a really interesting one, too, yeah. I must admit. Yeah. Yep. Yep all right uh here we go we got one from uh let's see uh nathan milton formerly milton fan 15
2: from milton fan anything being done about referee performance because it was god awful this year nope i think we can all agree that it was god awful this year though well not in the
1: nfl though and the nfl is as good as it's ever been according to roger goodell (laughs) oh wow (laughs) who would have thought
2: that he would say something like that extreme
1: sarcasm coming out of my voice here's another one from irish blood we're going to try to work through as many as possible before ryan has to leave
2: harder to teach the average player of wait i'm sorry harder to teach the average player of each a running back into the passing game and receiving or a wide receiver and blocking for the run game nowadays it's wide receivers and blocking Yeah, I mean, you can't coach effort usually, right? I mean, (laughs) nowadays with
1: seven-on-sevens, these running backs are all coming up with experience catching the football. There's not as many receivers coming up with blocking.
2: Now, pass blocking is a little bit different for running backs, I would say. But, yes. But more so, but even now, even
1: there, it's more so now because there's so many more teams that that throw the ball back. I mean, back in the day, Ryan, I mean – they just ran a ball 70 times a game. I mean, they never sure. had a pass block. It's a little bit it's a little bit more than that now, but yes, that yeah. would be a little bit. I, I would
2: say yeah. in the senior, in the senior bowl though, it was painful to watch some of those dudes pass block, man. It was gross. Like I could not believe my eyes. Roshan Johnson from Texas was the only running back I saw that it's even remotely he better like he knew it. how he to is pass block. Huge. Like, he's massive. Yeah. yeah. Robert Bishop's question. Name your 3 Heisman candidates for next year other than Caleb Williams. I mean, get Drake Mays in there just because he was one of Drake, those guys yeah. this year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, honestly,
1: for me, candidates like Heisman Trophy candidates this early in the year are just not really they don't really matter a ton because it's going to change so much. I mean, who had uh, Max Dugan on their bingo card for, you know, uh, last year's. Uh, being a finalist for it. You know what I mean? He wasn't even Uh, a starter. So exactly. Exactly. So So I just, I don't put a ton in it. I mean, it's, it's it's just look at the guys that are coming back. Right. I mean, Blake Corum, Michael Penix,
2: Drake may Caleb Williams would probably be my, my guys that I would put in there. That's, Michael that's Pan- Michael Penix is a great one because of the I mean numbers he put up last year were fantastic and he's got all his dudes coming back and right? so. if they go 10 and two again this year it's going to get a
1: lot more pub because no one started paying yeah. attention to Washington like November that's true you know I mean just there was no respect for the pac 12 last year if they're good again this year now all of a sudden it's a better story because they're gonna start the season rank so much higher
2: yep Blake All Corm's right. the easy one because he probably would have been one of the top two or three vote getters if yeah. he didn't get hurt most likely. Yeah. You know? he, he, I would think they would have probably thrown
1: him in over Max Dugan. If I feel like he, Max Dugan was sort of the, oh, shoot, Drake May faltered and Blake Corm got hurt. Who are we going to put in there? Okay, let's yeah. go with Max Dugan. I kind of <laughs> felt like that was – now I could be wrong, but that's just kind of how I felt about that one. Sure. Uh, and, and
2: then he ended up as the runner-up, <laughs> which is like okay, – It's wild. Well, it's, it's wild, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There were people that legitimately were saying that he should have won it over Caleb Williams. I'm like, what are we talking really? about, man? Yeah, yeah. In this chat, in this chat, people were wow. saying that. Yes. Okay. Like today? No, no, like, to, like before the oh, highest trophy was okay. coming out. I was like, guys, yeah. guys. Like, yeah. I understand if we hate USC, but like Caleb's, I mean, come on. <laughs> come on.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Let's get to. I mean, Ryan, do you need to you need to take off? I can take one more. Yeah, I can take one more. Here's a good one. I, I okay. like this one. This sure. is a good one from Carl Bremer. I'll ask you first, and then once you're done answering, you can take off and I'll give my answer. And then I'll, I'm will i going to answer a few more questions here. Cool. Does Florida State or Miami have a brighter future? I think it's a very fascinating question. Does Florida State or Miami have a brighter future? Florida State is the
2: better team right now, but obviously Miami is recruiting better. I, I think as long as Mario Cristobal nails the OC and defensive coordinator hires – I believe that Miami still has a chance to have the brighter future here because I like Mike what Mike Norvell did this past year, but it's very it's gonna be a very senior laden team this year, right? And we're talking about the we're talking about the long term implications to building a program. What Miami did this year, although they, you know, didn't I mean Josh Gaddis and the DC, right? And Kevin Steele, not great coaches, right? Very good recruiters, though, and they did their job in that department. They got some good recruits to town. If Mario Cristobal now puts in good coaches around this town he is coming in, I still think Miami has a shot. I really do. And I, yeah, so I, I would pick Miami slightly just because I think that long-term is the question here, not as much. 2020. Because yeah. 2023, Florida State is going to be better. like no doubt
1: Because the reality is you have to look at it from a bigger picture standpoint. You just can't look at it from a who's got the better coach now, who's got the better team now. You have to look at it from the standpoint of really who has the better resources, and that's the problem that Florida State's struggling with right now. Is their resources just still aren't good? The money that's flowing into that program is just still not what it is for, for Miami. So let's you know let's say that uh, Mario Cristobal is as good as Miami people hope that he's he is. Eventually, he's going to catch Florida State and probably pass Florida State because it's so much more about money now, especially down in Florida. It's so much more about money now that it's just going to be harder in my opinion for those teams to, to win and and if they don't have money and miami has big money donors I and mean, that's it's one of the advantages of being a private school For being honest it's a better academic institution It produces a little bit i mean from what i have been told by people that live down there and know this kind of thing it there's just more money it's like notre dame notre dame's a smaller school but there's a ton of money flowing into notre dame compared to you know some of these other schools like if you look at like um you know, Notre Dame's endowment. I'm actually going to pull this up uh, real quick to make this point because I've made this point before, but Notre Dame's endowment, uh, they're a top 10 endowment, I believe. Let me just find this one real quick. Um, let's see here. No, that's yes. Okay. So here we go. This is an, an article that has the top 10 endowments, right? You have uh, teams that play football at the division one level. There's there's four. There's Stanford, who's third, Notre Dame, who is is seventh. Texas A&M, who's eighth, and then at Michigan University of Michigan, who is uh, ninth. Now, Notre Dame, as of this, per this article, which is from uh, 2021, so this is, an exa- this is September 2022, and so Notre Dame's a, a couple million up on Michigan, about 1.6 up on Michigan, but Notre Dame's, like, producing 8,000 graduates a year. Michigan's producing, I mean, they are tens of thousands in the size of their student body, which means Notre Dame has bigger givers in a lot of instances. Now, that's not always true, but that's just kind of the, the general uh, point, uh, point about it. And so um, I think those are things that, to me, you look at and say, okay, that's an advantage that Miami has. Miami has that kind of thing, where Florida State's a a, a, pr- a public school that that's just doesn't have great funding. And so I think that's where I think Miami has a little bit of the advantage, and why I think Miami's future is brighter. However, there's some tough sells about Miami. They don't have a a campus on stadium. I think that's a that's a tough sell. Uh, Miami can be a place some kids love, and some some kids are going to be overwhelmed by Miami. And and so and the school doesn't always commit to football the way that it needs to. Where Florida State wants to be good at football, they just don't have the money sometimes to compete with the Alabamas and the Miamis and teams like that. So now, if Mike Norvell can kind of get that program back on track maybe then the fundraising gets better but i still think miami's future is brighter but when i say that it's more looking further down the road miami's recruiting a little better right now but they lost Jaden rashada they had antoine jackson just asked, asked out of his nil after he reclassified to go there he asked out of his nil and now he's i mean it's just it's a bit of a mess and if miami doesn't start winning soon they're gonna be in trouble now here's the other caveat to this question carl if the NCAA comes down on this NIL stuff and really makes it hard to use it as enticement, that's going to hurt Miami because right now that's what's driving a lot of their recruiting efforts. Is they're just, they're willing to pay for kids, and you know that's helped them to me uh, quite a bit as you as you go through this process. All right, let's get to some more questions here as we as we get ready to roll out of here. Here's one from Ray Hallcraft. Holcraft, which position group on each side of the ball must play to their potential for Notre Dame to reach the playoffs in 2023? It's a good question, Ray. I would say offensively, and this is going to sound – I mean, you could go offensive line. Offensive line is going to be really good. I think the group that has to play to its potential for Notre Dame to reach the playoffs is, I'd say, offensive line. If I were to create the question a little bit differently, is which position group on each side of the ball must with the potential for Notre Dame to win the championship, it's quarterback. That's the one for me. I, th- I think quarterback's the one for me. You can get to the playoff without a great quarterback. Notre Dame's done it twice already and almost did it a third time. I mean, they finished fifth in 2021 with Jack Cona quarterback. So quarterback, not having a great quarterback, you can still get to the playoffs, the college football playoff, if you have a good defense and you a know, good running game, a good offensive line and all that. Uh, so offensive line is the key to getting there. Quarterback is the key to doing damage once you get there. On the other side of the ball, it's really to the conversation you had earlier. It's the defensive line. If they don't play to their potential, I don't think Notre Dame is going to be good enough on defense against the schedule they play this year to be a playoff team, much less a championship team to be a playoff team. I don't think they'd have it uh, in that regard. So defensive line is the is the direction I'm going to go on that one. Brandon Plesner says if asks if Notre Dame was interviewing a secret candidate, not on anyone's public lists, who would you want it to be? Realistic or unrealistic, but has to be an OC. Realistic for me, Mike Yursich. Unrealistic, Todd Munkin. I'd probably agree with you on the unrealistic one. I'd probably go Todd Munkin. Realistic one, it's not Mike Yursich for me. Uh, that That's not the direction I would go. If I would have to go in a direction as far as realistic, a, 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 a secret candidate, I'd probably go Garrett Riley just because I he's a guy that interests me He's an air raid guy, but he runs the ball, uh, and and it would be a secret because he's already taken the Clemson job. I mean, most of the guys who are offensive coordinators, Notre Dame's already talked to, and they've had a lot of people reach out about that job. I doubt that Garrett Riley has, so he'd be the secret one, right? He There'd be a reason for him to be a secret, and I think it's also a tad unrealistic, but that's one that I'd probably reach out to. There, That's the thing is like a lot of the guys that I would maybe mention on that list, Brandon, are guys that have gotten head coaching jobs recently, so it's kind of taken a lot of the guys away from Listen, honestly, I mean, I can't put the names out there, but a lot of the guys that I may want to say about it, they've actually talked to and, and reached out to, so uh, they're moving in the direction with some of them. So it's it's an interesting conversation for sure. Let's see here. Jacob Watson says, in 2023, if Notre Dame is in, a, is in contention for a playoff and have an offense that averages 38 points per game, what would have gone into the success, in your opinion, meant to be a fun question? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think, number one, the, to be 38 points a game and be a playoff team, your offensive line is a Joe Moore Award winner, right, or at the very least a finalist. It means the backs are as good as you think that they are. The receivers have at least been good. I think if the receivers are great, you're probably closer to 40. If the receivers are just good, and it means the quarterback play has been pretty good, not elite but pretty good. If the quarterback plays elite, you're over 40 points a game. But I think to be 38 in a playoff team, it's the offensive line and the run game really dominates. And then defensively, it means the defensive line's played pretty good. And you see guys like Riley Mills break out, like a Jordan Pateau, uh breaks out. Josh Burnham is one of those young guys that kind of takes that next step as a player. Uh, Javante Jean-Baptiste kind of steps up, and and you like what you see from him. So I think those kind of – and then the linebacker play gets better. I think those are the things to me that would play into that uh, into that question. So good good question, Jacob. Michael Hughes asks, in your opinion, is a bigger boost in recruiting to hire a pro guy that can sell a Notre Dame playbook, an NFL playbook, or a college guy with a ton of success at a smaller program? If you're going to talk about, in the way that you form the question, if we're talking about the initial boost to recruiting, it's the NFL guy. Long-term wise, however, to me, it's who's going to do the best job. And I think you can have a, because a lot of the, like the smaller program guys, probably going to be a younger guy, that no one's heard of, that's going to bring a lot of energy. And if he can come in and have success right away, then that guy's going to be a, a guy that people kind of flock to. We've seen that you know, in the past. I mean, Lincoln Riley goes from a guy at East Carolina to Oklahoma, and all of a sudden their offense is booming, and all of a sudden they're getting quarterbacks left and right. So I think that would be the way that I would go if I'm thinking more long term. But if you're talking about immediate recruiting boost, it'd be the NFL guy because you're just selling what they've already done before they play games. And I think that would be the, that would be the bigger part to that. So, and then here's the last one. I I like that. We're going to end on, I believe on this one, we actually have a a super chat here real quick that I'll get to um, here in a second. But, uh, um, and then, then I'll, I'll end, I'll end with the super chat, but I'm going to bring this one up here real quick from ND estimate trucking LLC. Better prospect ever, Golson or Kenny Minchie? I love Kenny Minchie, but Everett Golson was a better prospect. I thought Everett Golson was a top hundred player. I thought he was a tremendous talent. I still remember watching him in the South Carolina State title game against Jadavion Clowney, and just—I mean, he just was so good in that game. And he was—he was—he was—and part of the reason why he has a stronger arm, Everett had a cannon for an arm. He was a very natural thrower, and he was a really dynamic playmaker. He wasn't necessarily a runner per se; like he wasn't. Like you're not designing 15 designed runs, but he could scramble, he could make plays when you needed to. He was so good when things broke down. I loved watching Everett Golson play. And I and I still get bummed about how his career at Notre Dame ended. He was an outstanding, outstanding high school quarterback and, and prospect. Kenny Menci's very good. He just doesn't have the arm talent and the the athleticism that Everett brought to the table. He's probably got a better mind for the game than Everett does. Everett was just a natural player. And I think that Kenny probably has a little bit more of a head for the game than Everett did at the same age. But man, Everett was also super productive in high school. I mean, 12,000 yards passing, over 100, well over 100 touchdowns. He was a really outstanding player, a pretty good basketball player, too. And then here's this last one. We'll, we'll pull this one up and end with this one from Gregory Gilbert. Thank you for the super chat, Gregory. Very, very much, Gregory. Bama versus LSU this year. Who are you wanting to win? That's an easy one. It's, it's Alabama. I can't stand LSU. I, I never had an issue with LSU until I engaged in some of their fans this past year. And they're insane. They're really nuts. And the people that cover that team are just pretty much useless waste of space in a lot of, at least the ones I've encountered so far. Uh, and then, of course, you all know my feelings on Brian Kelly. So I absolutely want Alabama to win that game. Will they? I don't know but yeah, I, I would want, and I want them to win that game by 50. That's, that's kind of how I feel about it. So, yep. Yep. So, uh, that's why I would want Alabama to win that game. So folks, that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you all so much. We had so many great questions. There's still a lot we couldn't get to. You guys just have so many great questions. JP Bulesfeld. Um, I'm going to save your question for later. I would like for you, buddy, to bring that back next week. Cause I, I got the thing you're sending me. I really want to look into that. It was about the uh, selling tickets and stuff like that. I just want to learn more about it because that's a really fascinating question. It had to do with some new potential laws, the law American rescue plan, uh, which would basically mean like uh, if you, I think it's like over $600 worth of ticket sales that you have to pay taxes on it or something like that. How would that impact how people selling their Ohio state tickets and USC tickets? I mean, it could be, man. I, I want to just do a little bit more research into it and find out a little bit more about it. Cause it's a really fascinating proposal that you brought up to me. So I want to check that out. So maybe bring that back next Friday and we'll check that out. So uh, we'll have a, a draft show later tonight. And then tomorrow it'll be Ryan and then probably Sean Davis for the, for the, the recruiting show tomorrow. And then at five o'clock we'll have a a, a, a rapid fire, uh, IB nation sports talk rapid fire. So anyway, folks please hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell, share this podcast, give us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. And of course, Sign up for the message boards at boards on com. We'll talk to you all again very, very soon on the Irish Breakdown podcast.